thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. It's time to kick your shoes off, put your heels up, and listen to how to live your best barefoot lifestyle with your host, the barefoot podiatrist, Paul Thompson. Hello and welcome back to the Barefoot Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Thompson, the Barefoot Podiatrist, and today I've got a really special guest. I'm really excited to be talking to this guy today, Um, and you'll find out why in a second. I've got with me Dr. Ray McClanahan. So he's the podiatrist, fellow podiatrist from America at the Northwest Foot and Ankle Clinic. But also, this is my favorite part, the founder of Correct Toes. So you would have heard me going on about toe spaces and I've, I've done an episode on toe spaces and mentioned Correct Toes before. And if you follow me online, on social media, you would see me posting and sharing stories about my love for these devices. So I have him here today to answer all our questions and explain to us the benefits uh, of toe spaces, um, and we can find out a bit more about where all this came from. So, welcome, Dr. Ray. Nice to have you here. Thank you, Dr. Thompson. Great to be with you. Awesome. So excited. And for those of you who are following along as well, you may have seen I'm part of a new group, the Healthy Foot Alliance. Um, Dr. Ray is also uh, in this group, so we're out trying to spread a great uh, message and help. Uh, more people, I guess, find some more truths about feet and make better decisions about um, their own foot health and and foot health journey. So, yeah, keep watching that space as well. So, Dr. Ray, what's your background? Where's You're a podiatrist. You've been a podiatrist since around 95, I believe. Yeah. How do you go from a podiatrist cutting people open to now spruiking this barefoot health message and trying to essentially save feet in a, in a more natural way. What's been the journey for you? Yeah, two, two things uh, played into that journey for me. Uh, but what actually got me into podiatry was I loved to run and I saw the movie Chariots of Fire when I graduated high school. And unfortunately, um, I, I took that passion too seriously and I started getting injured almost right off the bat. And, um, and I, I, met a podiatrist, visited his practice, decided it was a great profession to go into. And so I went out to Philadelphia, studied podiatry, came back to Portland, did a residency in surgery and began promptly doing a lot of operations. But to answer your question, Paul, the two things that kind of changed my mind, um, literally, the first thing was an article that I read in Podiatry Management Magazine in 1999. So I'm, I'm just out of uh, residency a couple years and I'm doing a lot of operations and I'm making a lot of orthotics. I was currently work, I was working at an orthotics lab at the time, but this article, which you might want to link for your audience and I paid copyright privileges. So you get, uh, you can do that legally was written by a podiatrist that was a very unusual yet interesting podiatrist by the name of Dr. William Rossi. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1999, he wrote an article in podiatry management magazine that captured my attention mostly because it was called why shoes make normal gait impossible. And it, had you visited me in the practice at the time, you would have seen the high powered uh, camera and the treadmill. And, you know, we're spending a lot of time watching the way people walked and ran thinking that um, if we could 
figure out what was wrong with their biomechanics, we could, we could heal them. So I, I dove into this article and, um, if you get it, you or your audience get a chance to look at it, it's very eye opening. Um, thing about Dr. Rossi was his parents owned a shoe store. So he learned early on the, the relationship people have with fashion and how their shoes look. Then he became a podiatrist, but he was, after a year and a half, he retired because he was bored with the predictability of treating adult foot ills. So he became a footwear industry consultant, traveled all over the world. And what I love about his work is it's rich with photographs. So he, he went to barefoot cultures and mm -hmm. he, he, he profiled the children from infancy and he profiled the senior citizens and places like where I grew up in Liberia, West Africa, places I've visited, South America, parts of Asia, there are people that have never had a fashion shoe on their foot and their foot still looks like a baby foot. So Dr. Rossi, it, it shocked me quite frankly, Dr. Thompson, because I'd never heard any of this. And when you, you and I were visiting a little bit in the introduction, my training was exactly like your training. It doesn't matter what kind of an arch you've got. There's some kind of an orthotic for that kind of an arch. And so here's a guy who was a podiatrist that has this perspective that maybe shoes are what's messing up our gait. And so putting arch supports into shoes that are messing up our gait might not necessarily fix the problem. He followed that article up with four other articles in the same journal. They're also on my website. One of them you would be particularly interested in, Dr. Thompson, is called Children's Footwear, Launching Site for Adult Foot Ills. If you haven't seen oh, these, they're, yeah. they're oh, oh, incredible. So, so that changed my mind literally overnight. I came back to practice the next morning and I shut down the treadmill because I learned in that article and subsequent articles of his, looking at people's gait right off the bat probably wasn't the first thing I should have been doing. First thing I should have been doing is is uh, looking at how their footwear is fitting them, and is it footwear that's truly shaped like a human foot? And so, uh, the other thing that changed my mind was while I was doing my surgical residency, we're operating on probably ten bunions a week, and hammer toes, which I know you see a lot of that. But one of the components of the bunion operation is to literally cut the adductor hallucis muscle off of the big toe and off the sesamoid bone. And uh, at that same time, I was developing a bunion myself from wearing size nine pointed running shoes for miles and miles and miles. I'm literally a size 12. So unknowingly, I was deforming my own feet. And that's also something I didn't learn in podiatry school that shoes deform our feet. I learned that shoes were good and you need good support and the more the better. So the combination of reading Dr. Rossi and then realizing I didn't want to have my adductor hallucis muscle cut off the bone um, got me thinking more along the lines of physical therapy principles, more along the lines of rehabilitation principles. And so I started manually reducing my own bunion just using single silicone splints, mm -hmm. the kind that you can get at the drugstore. And uh, I noticed that my toes were getting straighter. And I also noticed that my knees and back were feeling a bit better, which was a bit surprising. And again, not something I was conditioned to believe uh, that could, could be related, but it certainly was. The, there was two problems back then, though. The, the primary problem was there was no shoes available that were shaped like runners' natural feet should be. There were Crocs and Birkenstocks. <laughs> so at the, at the time, we literally, most of my patients are athletes and most of them are runners, long-distance runners. So we actually ran our races in our Crocs and we looked really crazy doing it, but we ran really well and we weren't injured. Um, 
you know, fast forward to now, as you well know, there's probably 30 or 40 reputable companies making natural, healthy, anatomically correct footwear. Yeah, um, I don't have any trucks anymore. <laughs> that, yeah, thankfully we don't have to. Um, <laughs> so uh, the other problem was those little silicone splints would not stay in place. Once we got out and started exercising, our foot perspired, they promptly moved. Um, so then I, I was uh, riding mountain bikes with a designer buddy of mine and telling him about this. And so we got together and we, we put four of those silicone pieces together. We made it adjustable for different size feet, different foot problems. And uh, we've been at it since probably 2003, I want to say. So about 17 years we've been making these toe separators now. That's awesome. It just kept evolving, has it? Into what yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 Materials and design. We made a lot of mistakes early on. Um, we only had two sizes early on. We were sending them out in sandwich bags. <laughs> so, we've, yeah, we've gotten a lot more sophisticated. We've learned a lot. We've helped a lot of people. It's been a great journey. That's amazing. It's funny how you were saying, um, like in podiatry school, you don't learn much about, you know, what shoes do to feet. We, were, we had a, a subject on footwear and looking back, it's just laughable. They, they spent you know, half the lecture talking about Chinese foot binding and how bad it was and how, you know, we've come so far. But now on the, on the flip side where, where I am now, I look at things like, you know, most modern joggers and think, well, hang on a minute, we're kind of doing the same thing, just not to the same extreme. It just doesn't look as bad, you know, off the bat, but over time. And if you look at um, some of Dr. Rossi's articles that, that Dr. Ray was talking about, it's plain as day. You can see the, the change in shape of feet based on a, I guess, what we'd call a normal shoe, right? Like a non-foot shaped shoe. You can see that it changes the shape of the foot. So, you know, are we still Chinese foot binding? I think we may be kind of, you know, still still back there a bit. Um, so shoes, what other than the toe box being narrow, and we'll get back to correctos in a minute. I've got lots of questions about them. What else, like as a, a podiatrist and, and kind of looking more now at function, what are the main issues of shoes? What have you found like are other problems that shoes um, that don't fit well can create? The first one that struck me from the same Dr. Rossi article I'm sharing with you is the elevated heel. Now, as you recall, in the front of that article, he's got three different ladies standing there. One lady's in her bare feet, perfect natural body column. Then they put a one-inch heel, two-inch heel, and a three-inch heel. And obviously, we're not like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. We make alterations throughout our body so that we can stay upright, but they're obviously not good for our ankle and our Achilles tendon, and they're not good for our hip and core and so forth. So I would, plus this, the scientific literature has some good research out there showing what happens to the back of our leg when we wear a two inch heel, our calf muscle gets 14% shorter. So Dr. Rossi taught me that heel elevation is bad to your point, Dr. Thompson, uh, narrow tapered toe boxes are bad. doesn't matter if you go wider, it's still a wrong shaped triangle, you know, as opposed mm. to what the foot should be. Let's just stop there for a second. And so, and we've had this discussion with the foot healthy foot alliance recently around a wide toe box. Right, and you've made some really good points in that in those discussions, and I just want to, I guess, raise that here now as well, because I've had a few people over the last couple of days that I've been trying to educate, and when I mention a wide toe box, 
which I keep making the mistake of saying, everyone wants to correct me and say, well, they've bought the wide toe box. You know, it's a 4E or a whatever, a 4Z. It doesn't matter, right? Right. What matters is the the width at the toes. Right. So we're in, we're in this kind of false belief that a toe box is the the width of the, the ball of the foot. Right. But anatomically, do you want to explain, I guess, yeah. why and, and what we need wide toes for? Yeah, sure. So when a new person comes to visit us, the first thing we do is we pull out my daughter's baby footprints. Yeah. And, you know, we, we talk about the reality that nearly all of us that come into the world come in, to your point, widest at the tips of the toes. I even also show my own baby shoes, which are widest at the tips of the toes. But then I pull out this metal measuring device that perhaps you folks use in Australia called the Brannock device. Of the shoe measure? Yeah, you stand on that metal device and you get your length of your foot. And then you get this the thing that you... Yeah. Yeah. Well, then, then I share with, with the patients and the customers that by about age two or three, we're measuring little children based on that device. We're measuring them widest at the ball. And what people also don't know, and I didn't know early on, the Brannock device is designed for fashion footwear. In other words, shoes that are pointed. So if you want to have healthy feet, you don't want to use that device because to your other point, it doesn't matter if it's 4Z. You know, um, there's people that I meet weekly practically that the widest toe box won't, still won't be wide enough and it won't be wide enough in the right spot. Hmm. Um, and if I can tangent off for just a slight second and offer what I believe to be the most um, comprehensive way of seeing if the shoe will fit your foot is just to pull that little removable sock liner that comes out of it. You know, it's a brilliant visual. And if you stand on that and you look at it, is it compatible with your foot or not? And we're going to publish some research that we've been, we've been tabulating the data for probably 12 years now, which indicates that 90% of the feet that come into my clinic are not only wider than the footwear that they're in, they're also widest at the wrong spot, widest at the ball. Yeah. Um, so, and the, the other reason why we photograph all the new patients, not only to show them that, show them and the rest of the, uh, hopefully the podiatry community, what the real problem is. It's also a good uh, way for us to follow back up with them down the road and show them as their deformities resolve, the change that's taking place. It's, it's really cool. So we've got a problem with the heel. We've got a problem with um, the toe box not being anatomically correct, no matter how wide. Um, and I actually just uh, contributed to a discussion on some, some science that came out on the third thing that Dr. Rossi taught me about, which is toe spring. Mm -hmm. So if your audience isn't familiar, that's where the tip of the shoe, most shoes, uh, almost all athletic shoes, will be higher than the ball of the foot. And so essentially holding the toes above the ground surface and making the ball of the foot, the weight bearing point. Like that little rocker at the front. Yeah. Up to the toes. Yeah. Makes no sense, right? Looks cool though. Well, no, well, it, it, there's two reasons why it might make a little bit of sense. And one is based on the way we used to construct shoes a long, long time ago. If we made, if we made the sole stiff and it didn't have a rocker, people couldn't hardly walk in it. So one of the reasonings back then was to help people walk through, but the research that just came out shows that putting a toe spring on a shoe doesn't engage our arch muscles and they're going to get weaker. Um, another brilliant article, if you haven't come across it, was from Dr. Phil Hoffman in 1905. He traveled around the world and did much what Dr. Rossi did. He profiled cultures that had never worn shoes. And the overall conclusion at the end of his paper 
And by the way, for your audience members, a group of us rewrote that paper on the Natural Running Center website. It's a free ebook. Mm-hmm. So if anybody wants to look, because Dr. Thompson's paper is pretty in-depth and scientific and a lot of data points and so forth. So if you just want to get to the nuts and bolts of it, um, we've got a synopsis there. But the overall conclusion was people that wear shoes like industrialized societies, like Australia, Canada, Europe, America, which is basically the high heel, the pointed toe box, and then the toe spring, they will all eventually develop extensor dominance or extensor contracture in the top of the foot. And I don't know about your practice, but whenever I sit a patient up in the treatment table, almost immediately I'll notice nearly all of them have a significant component of, of dominance, extensor dominance. Yeah. Yep. I'm seeing it in, in younger and younger kids too. You bet. Yeah. And the problem there is if we're shortening the back of our leg with the elevated heel and we're shortening the front of our leg with the toe spring, the really important arch muscles are stretched too long beyond their length to tension relationship and they won't work right. And if you want my opinion, that's a huge contributor to much of the ball of the foot problems that we see, much of the plantar fascial problems that we see, balance issues and so forth. So, And then the fourth thing, well, there's four and five. I think the fourth thing is the torsional rigidity, how shoes are built to be stiff like a cast. Mm. And believe it or not, here in America, most podiatrists teach people that that's a good thing. It's fact, exactly. a, is it? That's too yeah. bad. There's this... There's a sports podiatrist in Seattle that came out with a three-point criteria, stable heel counter, only bends at the ball of the foot, and torsionally rigid, meaning it shouldn't bend side to side. And when asked about where his research is, he has no reply because he didn't do any research. He basically just said, these three things are good, feet are weak and flawed, and you need to provide this kind of support. Unfortunately, the physical therapy community has started uh, using that, the athletic training community is using that, and there's there's no scientific basis for that. So I I think I'm just calling um, our association here um, and kind of you know educational body to the public. They preach that, so I'd called them anonymously <laughs> and wanted to find out you know what what made up a good shoe, and they gave me those five points. You know, stiff, rigid, um, small heel, cushion, whatever. I said, oh, cool. So, you know, and then over here we have shoes that are endorsed as well by the association. I said, I was wondering, you know, what's the criteria? You know, if, if I was to have a shoe, like how do I get that put forward? And they said, well, basically there's three podiatrists sit on a panel. And I said, oh, cool. Was there a checklist that I can get a hold of to see what they're looking for? Oh, no, no, it's just, it's subjective. They look at it and have a look at, you know, whether it feels and looks like it's supportive enough. I said, oh, okay, is there research around the being supportive? Oh, these podiatrists are very experienced. Don't worry, sir. I was like, oh, okay, so three podiatrists are speaking for the whole community with no basis to it <laughs> and then preaching that to the public. I think it's quite scary. Yeah, same thing happens here. In fact, it's even maybe a little bit worse with our governing body here in the United States. When I worked for an orthotics lab, that orthotics lab had an, uh, an over-the-counter offshoot product and uh, I was talking to the marketing director of the company that one particular day, and he said, do you know how you get the American Academy or the American Podiatric Medical Association seal of approval? And like you, I assumed there was, you know, criteria and research behind it. He said, it's a $5,000 check. And I said, you got to be kidding me. He said, no, it's a $5,000 check, which is why if you look at the products that are on their, on their approved list, You've got ones that are very supportive over here. And then you've got Crocs. Literally, Crocs started a medical program through the APMA because they gave them a ton of money. 
Yeah. So that's the same thing. So, that was that was a, the final criteria they did say to me that there is a fee for endorsement. Yeah. As well. no, yeah, that's that's too Pay me enough, yeah. and I'll endorse anything too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's scary, right? It's yeah, to it think is. that you know, and and it's it's sad that we've gone so far that way that now it's just a belief system. Like people are that conditioned like to try and then sit there and explain to a client who has feet that are, you know, all mangled and in so much pain that do anything to for you to help them. When you start talking about natural footwear, trying to correct some of these muscles, it just doesn't compute. And they, they look at you crazy because it's like, well, hang on, but don't I need an orthotic and, you know, an expensive shoe. And it's just like, wow. Like, <laughs> so you spend half your time or more than half your time trying to actually just, undo these conditioned beliefs um, just to help someone start to try and fix some dysfunctions in the feet. I think it's, yeah. But in saying that eight years ago, I was preaching the same thing, you know, until I knew better, you know, I guess you only know what you know, right? But you think in this day and age with the amount of people that are out there and the science that's around now, that that things would change, but but money speaks. (laughs) Yes, it does. Now, do you think, you know, when we have these dysfunctional feeds and structural problems, um, you know, things like neuromas, is surgical intervention still an option in your eyes? Um, is it just a no-go zone? Are there is there a time and place? What, what's your thoughts on surgery these days? Yeah, um, I still recommend probably 5% of my patient population at some point will go have something. Um, but I, whereas I used to believe, you know, 70 or 80% of them probably needed orthotics and arch supports or potentially surgery. Now I think um, it's a very small number, but I'll give you one example. Since you brought up neuroma, mm-hmm. I had a downhill ski racer who had a bad neuroma and looking at all the ski boots that were available to him, I realized he was never going to naturally get better. You know, he couldn't separate his toes in the boots. He couldn't, he didn't have enough room in there for a metatarsal pad. So I knew um, without, well, we certainly gave him some injections and so forth to help him with some discomfort, but there are times and places I think that people need operations. For instance, if somebody waits too long to come see us and they've got a bad bunion and they've got a lot of arthritis, then yeah, perhaps they, they might be a candidate. So I'm not adamantly opposed to it, but here, here in the U.S., um, it's, it's discouraging to me to see that our entire post-graduate uh, program is now being pushed to be a three-year surgical residency. So um, not to say we don't need some really skilled surgeons, but unfortunately here in America, our, our young people are not learning about strengthening and they're not learning about natural anatomy. They're not learning about balance and footwear. They, they really believe that feet are flawed and that, you know, and they really believe that bunions are structural problems that run in people's families and you can't do anything about it except maybe jack up the arch, you know? Yeah. So it's really just a horrible mis, miseducation, misinformation that is per, perpetuated year after year after year. Um, so, I'm not adamantly opposed to it, but I think that it's grossly overused here in America, undoubtedly. Yeah, I think it's heading that way here as well, unfortunately. And orthotics, so you're saying you don't use them as much anymore either? Not, not as much. I used to, I would probably have a footbed or an orthotic in nearly everybody's shoe back 
back when I believed that, you know, um, nowadays, uh, well, I do see structural problems like you do, I'm sure, but I don't think the majority have structural problems. I think the majority are weak and deformed because of their footwear, but I'll give you an example. I just find a lot of people, you know, strength and deformities, but there's a lack of control and a lack of brain connection. So they've been that unused. It'd be like putting a hand in a, a cast for, you know, years and years. And then wondering why when you take that off, you, you know, struggle to pick things up and use that. It takes time, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I do still make orthotics, but like surgery, it's probably 5% of the patient population. I had a lady recently that not to get technical in front of your audience, but you'll understand. I had a lady with a rigid four foot valgus. Mm-hmm. And so she, she, uh, and she couldn't compensate. So every time she'd go up on her forefoot, she'd have this rapid resupination moment. She, she blew out her perineus longus twice, had surgery twice, was tearing it the third time, and finally somebody reasoned with her, you've got some kind of a biomechanical problem or a structural problem. And so she came to see me, and, and interestingly, it was only on one foot. And so I made her an orthotic where I made her a nice four-foot post. I lifted up her lateral column to be the same you know, height as her first ray. And so her foot was neutral, and she comes every six years, gets an orthotic, she's happy, she's comfortable. Um, so I think for the people that really need it, I think our training is probably the pinnacle of training that you can get biomechanically for orthotics in the feet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, but I don't think that most people need that. I think most people need to be educated about footwear and taught how to make that brain foot connection. Like you mentioned. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. And that's what I've been saying to I get a lot of students come through my clinic. And that's one big point I try and get across that, you know, as podiatrists, we are, you know, the the top of like foot and ankle biomechanics, you know, as far as orthotic manufacture and prescription go, like we're really well trained at that. But it's got to the point now that we overuse it and and don't look outside that box. And I think that for the for the right person, an orthotic designed and prescribed through a podiatrist can be super beneficial. But it's now got to the point that, and I think podiatrists have just jumped on board as well because, you know, you can go to the, the pharmacy or, or drugstore and pick up a, an arch device, you know. So now it's got to this point that someone has foot pain from the public, they just assume they need an arch support. They'll get one from the chemist. That doesn't work. They want something better. They go to the podiatrist and want one made. And the podiatrist tends to just jump on board and, and kind of do that because it's kind of easy. So now we're in this yeah, in this problem of just it's so overprescribed and overused. Like people aren't the amount of people that come in here with an orthotic from other providers, uh, maybe chiro, podiatry, physio, doesn't matter, that have no idea why they're in that device or how long they need to be in it for. And that's something I really try and explain to my patients. If you know that four foot value you're talking about, if that's something that looks like it's gonna be long term and it's like, you know what, this is kind of it this is what's going to help you stay out of pain you explain that to them and they know why they're in it that it's you know a long-term thing but you may still give them exercises and they understand that and that's fine the amount of people that just have them because they had a sore toe once or you know whatever like a bit of arch pain that arch pain hasn't been there for 20 years but they still wear the orthotic it's like well why you i don't know like you're going to keep wearing that like (laughs) but until something happens you get another device like I just think that it's so overused that 
but it's not the public's fault. I think there's a lack of education around that. So it'd be nice to see the industry, you know, make a shift and, and take on more of a professional um, approach and a more um, yeah, caring approach <laughs> around orthotic yeah. use. Yes. Um, you know, because I think it, it is a, they can be a dangerous device. And it's like if you're a doctor prescribing um, pharmaceuticals, you review them frequently to make sure it's still the right drug choice. That is no nothing kind of adverse happening with that medication. Well, there's nothing better out there, but it doesn't happen with the foot. <laughs> the foot's just treated so differently to the rest of the body. You know, it's like yeah. any you would not put a cast like an orthotic on any other part of the body and be okay with it for your whole life, not knowing why you have to wear that. Can you imagine wearing a neck brace for your whole life just because you had a sore neck once? Yeah. Like, well, they actually it just makes no sense. You've probably, you've probably seen these ladies in Thailand that wear the long rings on their neck. <laughs> yeah, what, I don't know, what's that for? Is that a fashion thing? It's fashion, yeah. But I've heard that if they actually remove the rings, they they can't control their head. Oh, you know, because their their head just literally goes to the side because they they have no muscles to hold it up. So your your point is well received and absolutely true. Why would we do that to the feet if we wouldn't do that to the rest of the body? Unless, and perhaps I shouldn't be cynical, but unless it's for reimbursement, which I worry sometimes it is. hundred percent it is. Yeah. Never ever go to a medical practitioner around holiday time. <laughs> That's the worst time to go. <laughs> That's my first question when I go in. Have you any holidays booked, you know, that you're trying to fund? <laughs> no, great. I guess. <laughs> That's good. It's an industry though, right? Like, and that's, that's another issue. Like, and I've always thought it wouldn't happen. I'd, I probably wouldn't want it to happen, but how different would it be if a podiatrist had to outsource their orthotics to an orthotic lab? You know, so like a, a GP prescribing and the pharmacy sells that, so they're not actually selling and making money off the medication. How much different would the industry look if mm. the podiatrists weren't selling the device that they're also trying to treat you with? Yeah, and I'm not saying that every podiatrist is out there to make money. Like there's, again, some people just, that's all they know and that's how they treat and that's fine. It's up to the public to kind of make, you know, choices and look into options as well. But yeah, how different would it look if, you know, if the person doing the treatment wasn't making the money off the device being sold? Good point. Yeah, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, can I ask about prolotherapy? I noticed on your website, you, um, you talk a bit about, um, regenerative injection therapy or prolotherapy. What is it? How do you use it? Does it work? Yeah. So basically, um, it's a, it's a dextrose solution and there's various concentrations and, when, as I've learned about it over the years, I've also recognized that different providers use different combinations to come up with their ultimate cocktail, if you will. Um, but what we use here in the clinic is, is dextrose, 50% dextrose with a little local anesthetic. And I was super skeptical at first um, <clears throat> until I saw one gentleman who was an Israeli, Israeli soldier who was a, one of these guys that jumped out of airplanes. And so he sprained his ankle a few too many times and he had a really loose, unstable ankle. And I'm trained to um, 
go in there and, you know, reroute his perineals through his fibula or something like that and stabilize his ankle that way. And I did a lot of that. And then sadly, not that gratifying. Um, but then I heard about prolotherapy. I looked into it. Years ago, I started hanging out more with the natural naturopathic crew, you know, and the chiropractic crew and physical therapy and so forth. Um, so I started learning from them. And I, I remember this guy vividly. Uh, I remember how unstable his ankle was. And I remember him having uh, not that many treatments. Um, I gave him a few treatments. He also went down to Los Angeles and had a few treatments. <clears throat> Excuse me. But his ankle got stable from that sugar. And since that time, I've <clears throat> excuse me, I've used it a lot for uh, hallux limitus rigidus of the big toe. Um, it it sounds sounds wrong. Some, some people think it's purely placebo, but um, but it actually works. And these days, we're also using the platelet-rich plasma. We're also using the stem cells, seeing some good results with the stem cells. Um, so instead of doing what I'm trained to do it. Maybe you guys do some of this in Australia, give cortisone, just try to make the pain go away. These regenerative injection therapies are actually trying to promote tissue regrowth. Um, and it's pretty gratifying. You know, it, uh, the downsides are it's not covered by insurance and it's expensive. Another downside is it's painful. Um, but it, I've seen it work really well. And if, if we can give people a non-surgical option for recovery, uh, I, think, I think that's pretty exciting. And so if somebody's contemplating an operation, then I definitely would encourage them to try that prior to having the operation. Mm. Um, but we, we have good success with it. We've got three other doctors here in the clinic that also use it. In fact, one of our doctors primarily only does regenerative injection therapy. And uh, we, we see really good results. Yeah, wow. So it'll work in the joint as well? But you get more you range of motion? You bet. Yeah, and less pain. Wow. Yeah. Okay, I'll have to look into that. Prolotherapy. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's always a pain when you have those joints that just don't want to bend and they're causing compensations through gait and movement. It's one thing that would be nice because over here, that normally ends up with lots of big chunky screws all through it to just use the joint and then I just find it goes all pear-shaped from there. Yes. Once you lock that joint up even more and then your muscles don't fire and you know, you know the way. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, So, correct toes. Let's chat a bit more about them. Yeah. Now, you've recently done a study Mm -hmm. or been part of a study. Do you want to tell us about that? I think it's pretty exciting. that there's now science to, to start showing yeah. you know, more around barefoot health, but in particular, yeah, the, the benefits of non-foot orthotic-based treatments or surgical treatments. So that's, yeah, tell us about this, this study that you've been part of. Yeah, it's super exciting. Um, we've been working on it. We just published it. We've been working on it probably for four or five years, but we published uh, this month in the Journal of Sports Rehabilitation. I think I was able to send you a copy of it. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, you're welcome. What we found fascinating about this is we, as we were experimenting with correct toes, people would come in and they would say things like, you know, when I do my yoga with my correct toes on, I can, I can hold my balance poses so much better. Or people would come and they would say, I'm just more aware of the ground. Or, and they would tell us these positive things that seem to correlate to better balance or better proprioception and, and, and awareness. And so 
we researched the literature and there's a ton of research surrounding traditional orthotic therapy and what what impacts it can have on balance but there was literally nothing in the literature that nobody had ever looked at what happens if we put feet particularly toes back into to their natural alignment meaning what happens when we when we put these toes widest at the tips not at the ball so we took three groups of uh of college students um which it might have we maybe will follow we're doing a follow-up study right now in louisiana but we probably will try to do an, a study on elderly folks as well because that's what we're really intrigued about is if we can prevent falls from happening mm. but we took three groups of people the first group our control group wore their regular shoes so the shoe with the elevated heel the shoe with the tapered toe box and the toe spring and we did a balance test called the starburst excursion test so it's a single leg test and you reach out into three quadrants trying to maintain your center of mass um, and then we took a second group and we put a pair of shoes made out, out of Boulder, Colorado called LEMS, L-E-M-S. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we tested them and they were better than the conventional shoe group. Then we took correct toes along with the LEMS shoes and tested the third group. And it was really gratifying and exciting to see that the group that not only spread their toes, but had the thin shoe, they could feel the ground had significantly better balance compared to the other two groups. And what further excited us is we even noticed that when we took the shoes and the correct toes off and retested them, they had learned better balance from that intervention. They had cued their brain. Um, So we're super excited about that. We primarily pursued that from the athletic patient population because most of our work is sports medicine. But as we got to thinking about it more, um, think about how many people in Australia and in America that are falling and breaking their hip and not ever getting out of the nursing home. You know, Mm -hmm. you might've been on the call a couple weeks back when one of our members on the health feed Alliance had his father do that fell, broke his hip and was dead two weeks later. Oh, really? So when you start looking at the uh, economic impact too, it's a multi-billion dollar problem falls that are happening. And when you couple that with the fact that people are dying, because they can't feel the ground. I mean, that's a huge part of it. Certainly there's other things playing into it like medications and cognitive impairments and so forth, but I'm convinced that a large portion of it's just feet that are not aware and to your previous point, feet that are not making proper connections with our brain. Mm. So yeah, yeah really, really and I wonder too, like with, um, cause I was thinking about this reading the study, I wonder how much, when there's obviously a, a, a neural component that fires off the muscles. And when you centrate a joint, so if you take a joint and take it out of its optimal alignment, it's not going to function as well. And then the muscles around that are going to not fire as well um, or be stretched or, or whatever. So they're not going to work as well as they should. But also if the joint's not aligned as well as it could, the brain wants to compensate for that. It knows that it's unstable. It wants to protect it. So when you start realigning toes which doesn't seem like a big deal but in the scheme of things it's a huge deal because that's like if the toes are out of alignment that means the muscles like the abductor hallucis aren't going to fire as well so you start recorrecting that you know big toe especially getting abductor hallucis to fire getting a better message to the brain you know how much of it's due to that like i wonder I think a lot. I think perhaps most of it. You know, the other thing that we noticed immediately from the study is that we we created a wider base of gait 
just by, you know, spreading the foot out. So we knew that was going to benefit, but I think you're absolutely right. I think it's um, allowing the muscles to communicate better with the brain and better, better promote overall body control and coordination. Mm. But then also when you look at the, the, the actual foundation of the foot, you know, if you, and I get patients to try this, you know, if you try and balance even in a kneeling position on one hand and you put that hand really tight and closed, it's hard to activate the hand and you're just a little bit more unstable and your shoulder works harder and it feels different. You open that hand and really plant those fingers, you start to feel connection to that whole hand and you feel, most people would say, that your, your shoulder feels more stable. So it kind of locks that whole chain into position. So it only makes sense that the foot, you know, should act the same, that as we start to you know, put it into a good position, we start to activate all those muscles, feel that connection with the ground, that that whole chain up to the hips going to start firing better and, and, you know, can't not give you better balance. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think definitely. it's exciting. I think it's research that definitely needs to be done. Because, um, yeah, like, like you said about the, the more senior population, we, we see a lot of falls. And if it's as simple as taking away some of these rigid, you know, thick cushion shoes and offering people, you know, simple non-surgical options like toe spaces to help them around the house move better with more control and more and with less risk of falling, like that's genius. <laughs> it's important. Yeah. And so much better on the healthcare system, like, you know, as far as cost and and just general, you know, well-being for people. It's just, yeah, I think it's, it makes a lot of sense. It'd be interesting to see in children how that worked as well. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any uh, correct toe children models coming out soon? Oh, yeah, we have them. Really? In fact, we've, oh, yeah, in fact, uh, we have four sizes. Most of our little kids will fit into the extra small yeah, but we got a we had a customer reach out this morning. Even our extra small was too big for this one little set of feet. So we actually have our designer make custom ones. Oh, really? Yeah. So we have the the parents take measurements. They send them to our designer, and then he'll make something that's much smaller than our than our extra small. Because you know some of these little kids, yeah, I'm sure you've seen it too. They're two or three years old, and they've got some crooked toes already. Yeah, hundred so percent. But I'm seeing like primary school kids, you know, have spent the vast majority of their, or the first, you know, two or three years of their schooling in those tight toe boxes, sitting a lot too. So I'm sure that has a lot to do with hip dysfunction, which will change the foot as well. And it just, yeah, I haven't actually, I should have reached out to you earlier. Really. <laughs> I've had a few clients, like kids, that I've tried making little toe splints to try and just, give them a little something, but kids struggle to keep it on. Um, it was just like, yeah, if there was something that they could just put in their shoes and just really help open those toes up and give them a good stretch. Um, it'd be interesting to see too some of these young kids with some developmental milestones who have really locked up tight toes that fall and trip a lot, whether like correct toes and a, and a more minimalist shoe would help as well. I think so, yep. Mm. Very interesting. So what are the benefits of other than balance of wearing correct toes? Yeah. So primary benefit is, is reversal of a bunion, which I did on both of my feet. I actually had not only a bunion, I had uh, 
overlapping second toe, you know, so my second toe sat on top of my big toe toenail. <clears throat> so it helped me reverse my bunion, but it can also help hammer toes to resolve. We've got a bunch of patient testimonials, photographic evidence. Um, Taylor's bunion or bunionette can also be reversed. It's great for any kind of ball of the foot pain because <clears throat> if you can get the, the top part of the silicone holds the top part of the knuckles down, which then helps the fat pad to stay in under the ball. So that could be good for capsulitis, for neuroma, for sesamoiditis. Um, definitely better balance, um, better awareness. But people also tell us things like they make them feel emotionally better, which we never anticipated that people would have sense of calm or a sense of peace or well-being. But some people report those those findings as well. But Primarily for us, we're just trying to reapproximate the natural foot anatomy that we're all designed to have. And magical things start to happen once we do that slowly and get people into footwear that enables them to do that. Then, the, then their brain and feet connect like they always should have. Mm-hmm. And, and then a fascinating thing happens. Not only do they feel good and um, exercise better and have better balance, but then they can't wear their old shoes. It's hard to get back, isn't it? Yeah, they come in and they're like, well, yeah, I feel better, but I tried to go to the wedding in my old dress shoe and I had five minutes later, I had to take it off, you know? And the next thing they ask me is, why did that happen? Why did I used to be able to wear this particular pair of shoes for eight, 10 hours, and now I can't have it on for five minutes? <clears throat> Excuse me. I think it has a lot to do with taking awareness away from little children when they're two or three years old. Mm. So that we never cement the neuromuscular pathways between their brain and their feet then we give that back to an adult, their brain feet connect better. And then, um, then the brain's going to guard that because that's best function, you know, and I then their brain's- if, um, cause when you take, like, obviously our feet are sensory organs, pieces of equipment, but if you want to call them, there's a lot of nerve endings and same as our hands, lips, like they're designed to give our brain feedback. Right. And part of that will be with balance and, and muscle activation, um, joint position, like it's giving our brain lots and lots of info. You take that sensation away, that's going to create like a state of panic in the brain in that you now are using other senses to try and like make up for some of that sensation you've lost. So you're going to feel less balanced, even though you may have good balance, it won't, your brain won't feel like it's getting as much, you know, feedback to that balance. So I wondered too then with feeling more calm is if you're in shoes and your toes are all tight and you're losing some of that, that feedback loop, you know, how much of a state of stress is your brain in trying to just constantly work out, you know, where you are, what the next step's going to be on, what, what should it feel like? Cause it just feels like shoe, which <laughs> where, you know, you start giving that back to people and the brain, Oh, well, I don't know. I'm just, kind of making this up and just thinking out loud but i wonder you know if that's part of that that the brain just kind of goes oh cool well, we can feel that again we know what that surface feels like how much we need to activate muscles or joints based on that surface we can feel like the balance um you know i wonder if that's part of that that brain just kind of going ah oh. <laughs> like there it is <laughs> i'll bet it is that makes good sense yeah I don't know. I just, I just, yeah, the more I've spoken to chiropractors and had some amazing chiropractor mentors, um, the whole nervous system loop kind of always plays back into my brain. Like, 
you know, how can we get people feeling more through their feet to, to feed that loop and let people, you know, feel what it feels like to engage their feet because it's still part of our body. You know, we need to use it. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. One last question I'd love to ask that I get asked all the time. I'm not a, I'm not much of a runner personally. I know you like running and have done quite well in running over the years. As a podiatrist who has studied foot function, you've seen these intrinsic muscles, you, you, you know the foot inside out. Is running something that humans should be doing or there's a lot of people saying that we shouldn't run, that running is not, not something humans are designed to do? What, what's your take on that? Can our feet uh, like run without problems? Yeah, I sure think so. Um, and one example I would give that I've, I've looked into a little bit because it fascinates me is persistence hunting. Uh, are you familiar? No. So basically what, it, apparently they used to do this in Africa and I watched a video on it. It's, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube where they basically have these tribes over there in Africa where they, once they come upon a herd of animals, they isolate one of the animals and then they track it to exhaustion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, looking at that aspect of our, our evolution and our, um, what's the word I want to use, uh, survival, I surely believe running needed to be a part of it, you know, because if we didn't, I don't think that we would ever got, got to the, the protein sources, you know. Um, but I also think if it was something we weren't meant to do, I don't think children would just spontaneously, naturally, joyfully do it. You know, just nobody tells them go run, you know, they just, it, it feels good. So they want to do it. Um, yeah. I definitely think we're, we're supposed to run. I also wonder too about, you know, fleeing danger. You know, that's another time where it would be appropriate to run like a fire or an earthquake. So I definitely believe we're made to run. And I also believe our feet are perfectly designed to run, although that's not the perspective that I was taught in podiatry school. I was actually taught that feet are flawed and they need support and hard surfaces are incompatible with um, using our bare feet or using minimal shoes. But what's fascinating about that, and I'm sure you've seen this and experienced this in your own body, when we stimulate our feet, the skin gets thicker and stronger. The muscles get 10% stronger. Um, so I think the reason why a lot of runners in America have foot problems isn't because we're not supposed to be running, or I shouldn't say America, I should say worldwide. It's not because running is an unnatural form of activity. It's because we do it wrong in improper footwear is what I believe. So, yeah, and younger and younger children are being put in like non-foot-shaped shoes and never learn to run like naturally. Yes. I like just off topic a little bit, but well, kind of um, like my kids don't really wear shoes ever. Like my eldest son, even for preschool, we approached the preschool and said, look, he doesn't wear shoes. It's just a thing we do. Um, so we you know, after some debate, we kind of changed that. Um, fast forward to primary school, they had a shoe kind of, um, what's the word? Like you had to wear a certain type of shoe basically and they promoted shoes based on kind of what was being promoted and, and some financial rebates given to the school. So I had the, the school change their shoe policy <laughs> to have awesome. my son be able to wear barefoot shoes. 
So other than barefoot shoes for primary school, before that, my son hardly ever wore shoes. And I look at him run compared to his little buddies who have, you know, been in shoes and, and sort of done what most kids would be, you know, put into. Their running styles are so different. Their mm-hmm. body makeup is so different. Like my little boy, his glutes, like he does not look like he comes from my family. <laughs> he has the biggest, just roundest glutes that fire that well. His running style is amazing. Um, you know, he's quick. He's, it's, it really reassures me that, you know, you let kids, because I haven't taught him to run. I couldn't tell you, you know, I'm not, I'm not one for running coaching personally. So it's just something he's gone and done. And now my three-year-old is starting to follow suit. Um, same as climbing and they just that's what they do they just love to move which most kids do and they explore life through movement and by doing it without me getting in the way with you know artificial devices it's just been amazing to watch how their bodies developed and grown and the awareness they have around their body and their space has been really really reassuring to me there's been a few articles come out about um kids Shod kids versus non-shod kids. There was that big study a year or two ago. Did you see mm. that one? No, I don't think so. Um, it's to do with motor control skills. So they had about three or four different skills. It was a worldwide study. Um, they took kids who had been predominantly non-shod from certain cultures, kids who were shod, and ran the test, and they switched them over and put shoes on the non-shod kids and vice versa, and they all did better without shoes. Mm. in certain motor control motor skill um control skills so that Mm. was kind of pretty cool to see as well yeah i'll see so running is a good thing i'm just hung up on what you said at the start of the um the chat about the bunion surgery and taking the abductor hallucis off like that's the muscle that actually pulls the toe back into alignment you're trying to fix that toe but also cut the the muscle off that actually holds that there <laughs> makes no sense. Yeah, I know. It, it, well, it doesn't make sense. And that's what that part of it really bothered me. The other part that bothered me, you said a moment ago too, is there's screws and plates and all this hardware that goes in there. And I guess the biggest thing that bothered me was not just the, uh, the aggressiveness and invasiveness of it. The bigger thing that bothered me is when I learned from Dr. Rossi, it doesn't need to be done in people that are willing to choose shoes that are shaped like their feet, you know? Yeah. So then just um, lastly, as well, with that, you know, what would you put people in better shoe choices if they can, um, you know, correct toes? Do you then offer, like, exercises to help, like, get those muscles to stay there? Like, I, I know personally when I put people in toe spreaders, I'll have them, you know, activating things like the abductor hallucis to try and get more control through that muscle to try and keep the toes, like, in that position. Is that something you'd recommend? Yeah. Do you find you don't need to? Like, um, I give people two options. I tell them if all they do is put on correct toes and get shoes that are shaped like that and give it time, their feet will change. Yeah. But most of my patients are obsessive athletes. They want it right now. And so I do give them exercises. I not only give them all the strengthening stuff for intrinsic muscle strength, um, which there's six great studies out there that I've reviewed that it's irrefutable that they get bigger and stronger when we engage them. 
Um, but I'll give you an example. Like if somebody comes in and they have a bunion, I, I get them going on the spreader. I get them going in proper footwear. But I also tell them, if you want to get better quicker, I have them do what's called the bunion stretch. And I've put together a video. It's on the website, quick okay. four or five minute video, where basically I have people pull their bunion, pull their big toe away, and then actually work on the adductor halysis, you know, to try to release it. Because oftentimes I'll find it like a trigger point on the muscle belly in a person with a bunion. And so I tell them, you don't have to, but if you want to get better quicker, you should do these things, you know? So mm. the motivated ones will come home at night and after dinner or whatever, they're watching a the program, they'll do some foot exercises. I try to get people just to use their feet more. It's surprising to me how many people spend their evenings in their home wearing their shoes. It's surprising to me that we teach people in America to always wear their shoes in orthotics, even in their house. Yeah. So you know, what I try to get people to think about is just start engaging your feet, just start taking your shoes off, roll them on balls, stand on proprioceptive mats, go outside. Uh, I have a couple rock gardens in my yard that I put together on purpose just to stimulate my feet, you know? So I find that if, if the simplest things, if given appropriate amounts of time can bring about foundational change. Um, but to your earlier point, which is brilliant, we have to overcome all those other voices in, in our patients' minds, you know, the mm -hmm. other doctors and the shoe clerks and the, sh the school administrators and so forth that have told them, this is what you need, when in reality, we realize they don't really need any of that. Yeah. Because even often with like, diabetic patients, you know, they're really apprehensive about taking their shoes off because they've been told, you know, you, you go barefoot and you, it's all over. Yeah, I try to explain to them like it's about doing this sensibly, you know. Like I'm not saying run like here in Australia, our roads get really hot. So if you had sensory issues, like you're going to burn your feet pretty quick in summer. Mm -hmm. So it's like you know, let, let's have some sense about this. Let's set up a plan. Well, yeah, after dinner, you check the floor, you make sure there's nothing sharp on there, and you spend some time, you know, half an hour walk around that space with no shoes on. You're still giving that input to your feet that you still need. You're still motor nerves <laughs> that need yes. to fire you know like it's but it's just this conditioning so how long and how often would you wear correct toes for to we usually start, start change? yeah we um well it depends upon the individual for me it took me three and a half years before i saw a permanent change i saw immediate change in fact you, everybody sees immediate change in the first 30 minutes but it's not permanent yeah so uh it's funny how you take them off for the first time you're like whoa <laughs> yeah well, that's normal. Uh, <laughs> My toes yeah, are time for a quick story. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Okay, so when I first invented them, I sent them to any podiatrist that wanted a pair. And there's another lady here in Portland that calls herself a holistic podiatrist, so I sent her a pair. And she had a lady in the office with a bunion, and the lady said, "No, I don't want to have an operation. Do you have anything else for me?" And I don't know what your podiatry clinics are like in Australia, but here in America, most of my colleagues have four or five patient rooms going at any one time. So you've got somebody getting their toenails cut, you've got somebody getting an orthotic made, you've got somebody getting an injection, go to room to room to room. Well, this particular doctor said, well, Dr. McClanahan sent me these toe spreaders. I don't know if they work, but here, I got to go see this other patient. Let's put them on. So she put them on about 20 to 30 minutes later, came back to see the patient and called me that night because when she took them off, like to your point, it, there's, a, there's a temporary profound change, yeah. you know? Um, so it's irrefutable that it works. Um, 
it's cumulative though. So we start out with 30 minutes the first day, we go to an hour the next day, we go to an hour and a half the following day. So we take three or four weeks to get to a point where we're wearing them all the time. And then we have to be really careful with the footwear too, because a lot of people will buy them and just cram them into their shoes because they think their shoe has a wide toe box, you know, yeah. oh, they're wide enough. And they think that since they can get it in there, that it's okay. Um, but as you know, it, you got to have the right shape to let the toes get back out to where they belong. So it's, it's variable for people. Everybody makes change. Some people make very slow change. And the irony is the people that need the greatest change are the older folks that went a little too long with the pointed shoes. Yeah. And now um, it's taken them like, for instance, those folks, it'll take them years. I mean, they'll see some change right away, but as far as getting a whole healthy, natural foot and, Furthermore, to be completely fair and honest, I have seen people three, four, five years into it with very little change. And I don't know the reasons for that. Uh, I speculate maybe they're not quite as compliant as they tell me they are, because I'll have conversations with patients and then I'll see them out in the community wearing a pointed athletic shoe. And they yeah. don't even know I'm observing them. But, and then they'll come into my office with a natural foot shoe. So I, you know, how some patients want to please the doctor, you know, yeah. but oh, that's always going to happen. Yeah. But for the most part, uh, it's been nothing short of gratifying patients send us their pictures. Patients send us one of our colleagues, uh, podiatrist here in America took a, did a radiographic study on his own bunion. So he took an AP radiograph of his before bunion. He used correct toes for four months. He took an AP radiograph later and his bunion was clearly reversing after four months. So it works for the people it doesn't work for, Paul, um, are the people with a huge intermetatarsal angle. Yeah. Okay. So, in, so in other words, we're going to make their toe straighter, but we're not going to, we're not going to get their first metatarsal to come back. Yeah, there's too much know? change already happened. Too much, too yeah. much of a bone. But then I wonder, like, uh, it's probably more of a fashion thing. We look at, you know, oh, how much is it? Does it look, you know, like that bunion's gone? But even those people you're saying, I mean, if they're non-compliant, they're non-compliant. But if they are compliant and it doesn't look like the angles change and it's not correcting, I still wonder how much better their gait is. You know, like if they've been wearing that, and that's what I look at, you know, I mean, there's everyone's going to have lumps and bumps and, you know, over a lifetime, not just the foot, you know, it happens through our whole body. There's wear and tear, things change shape. That's part of nature. But how well that person can walk and how much, you know, natural function is part of that natural gait cycle. I wonder how much of that improves in the people that may not look like there's been a huge change, but I wonder how much more the glutes are firing, you know, is the, the big toe holding them better? I don't know. Like I just wonder, I might play around with some um, pressure plate stuff and see from a gait point of view, like how much more activation there is through the big toe you know, toe strength. It'd be interesting to do a um, a, a big toe strength study too, just from wearing something like correct toes, putting them in a the right position yep. and just yep. seeing how much more pressure can be exerted through the big toe for stability purposes. Um, you know, people who have worn and not worn them uh, without exercises just to see if realigning that toe helps activate the, the neural connection and, and fire the muscle off more. I might play around with some of this stuff. You got me thinking now. <laughs> what, 
Well, I bet it would. Um, I've looked at a couple studies. One was done by a podiatrist here in America, not on correct toes, but on Vibram five fingers. And it, it, he did measure the activation of the abductor helices. And mm -hmm. uh, when the big toe is in alignment, as you're saying, it is much more active, but it also gets stronger. It gets 10% bigger, you know, if we, if we line it up, you know, and as you well know, a muscle that is stretched beyond its length to tension relationship can't contract, so it can't hypertrophy. Yeah. You know, and that's perfectly perfect description of what happens to the abductor helices for almost everybody. You know, it gets long and weak and the adductor gets short and overpowers the big toe. And there's your bunion. I wonder the rest of the intrinsics if they would strengthen as well, just realigning the toe. You'd imagine they would. It'd be interesting to to kind of see that and, and get some some stats around that because I mean the abduction helices gets a lot of a lot of attention, but there's also a lot of other you know, intrinsic muscles that need to fire for stability purposes. So, yeah, food for thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's always evolving, right? Yeah. Writing that down. I want, to, um, I want to play around with some uh, force plate stuff now. <laughs> cool. I, I was down at the running event, oh, eight or nine years ago, and I bought a, I bought a new treadmill, a non-motorized treadmill. You run it yourself. And I bought a, a, an in-shoe gait measuring system. And the reason why I bought it is as the guy was demoing the system, I got on the treadmill with the in-shoe measuring system with, uh, with a shoe with no, no correct toes and no metatarsal pad. They took my measurements and they showed I had really high loading pressures under the second, third met heads. Then I put a metatarsal pad and my correct toes in the same shoe in the same moment and had beautiful, even loading over the whole front of my foot. Um, and it, it makes perfect sense because that we're supposed to dissipate the load evenly. We're not supposed yeah. to overload, you know, the central metatarsals. I'm sure you see a lot of that too. Oh, all the time. Even just as simple as a corn there, like the amount of corns you see in that area from overloading and friction, but then it obviously gets worse and the things like bursitis, neuromas, um, it's so common. That's amazing. Simple as correct toes, flat yeah. toes out easy right <laughs> it's easy and it, it, it's very easy yeah. this is awesome well i'm gonna let you i know you're very busy so i'm gonna let you run but thank you very very much for stopping by and, and chatting with us today and, and lighting enlightening us about correct toes and where they come from where they are now um, i'm so excited to know that um, they can be made in smaller sizes so anyone listening in who's asked me about um, their children with uh, curly kind of toes and then clawed toes. This is a great option. So if I haven't written back to you, <laughs> I'm telling you now, this is what I would be doing. This is like, would be the easiest place to start. A healthier shoe, which I promote regularly anyway, but correct toes. And yeah, for pretty much anyone listening in, I would recommend... Um, checking these out. I wear correct toes myself. I have tried um, other brands and look, there's some great brands out there, but I keep coming back to correct toes um, and not just because Dr. Ray's on the, on the call here with me, but I actually really like these devices. I can wear them in, um, in my shoes. I, I really love wearing them um, for after the snow. So I, as you guys have probably seen, I, I do a bit of snowboarding, um, which can feel like it compresses my toes a bit. Um, so I love after a day on the snow, popping these in and just chilling out. So, you know, I use these regularly. My family, well, not my kids, but I might have to, actually, they don't really need them at the moment anyway. They don't wear shoes, but 
Um, my wife and I both wear both wear these, and I'm a huge, huge fan. So if you're looking for toe spaces, um, be sure to check out Correct Toes. I will put uh, links in the show notes for um, for Dr. Ray's uh, clinic website, where you'll find lots of great information from um, just educational pieces to articles to different studies. Um, Dr. Rossi's article that was mentioned earlier. That's really worth the read. Um, that's yeah, it's quite mind changing <laughs> um, around this kind of natural foot health world. Um, and I'll also put the link in for uh, correct toes. So yeah, check them out. Anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? No, just thank you so much for your time. It's been a great conversation, and I appreciate your audience listening. Oh, we appreciate having you. Actually, can you just plug your social media as well if people want to follow uh, you if you have an account or, or correct toes? Where can people follow along and, and kind of, you know, sure. get some more info on there as well? Yeah, we've got the clinical website. We've also got the correct toes website, um, correctoes.com. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Um, I think Is that's that just correct toes on, on social media? Um, you know, I don't even know, Dr. Thompson, because I have somebody handle that for me. I'm pretty sure it's correct toes. So. Okay, I'll, I'll hunt it down and I'll, um, I'll put that in the, the link underneath the show notes as well. So you'll have access to kind of all the places you can find um, correct toes and more info about, about Dr. Ray and what he's doing um, in this space. But yeah, thank you again. Great having you here. Great finally connecting uh, with you and look forward to, yeah, doing more great work with you with the uh, Healthy Feet Alliance. Likewise. Thank you, Dr. Thompson. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.